I used to love watching the TV comedy show Seinfeld. There was Jerry with the sharp observations and the quick one-liners. George, lazy and insecure, always stumbling from one crisis to the next. Then there was Elaine, the superficial, energetic ex-girlfriend. And of course there was Kramer, the friendly, brutally honest, crazy neighbour. But by season nine I'd had enough because they were all thoroughly unlikable. They were selfish and self-obsessed. They lied to get what they want. They weren't interested in anyone but themselves. It was no wonder they couldn't keep a relationship very long. And even though I hate to draw the comparison, these chapters of Genesis (laughs) tell a similar story. As hard as you look, it's a story where no one is looking good. It's a story with no heroes. Let me quickly introduce the cast. We're starting at verse 19. Our cast begins with Abraham's son Isaac. This is the account of him, although in the next few verses we see it's more about his sons. We're going to see that Isaac is a guy who plays favourites with his kids, whose appetite for food rules his common sense. Verse 20, he's 40 years old when he marries Rebecca. Rebecca is determined and ambitious. She also plays favourites with her kids and plots and plans underhanded deals to benefit her favourite son. They're the parents. In verse 21, Isaac's praying to the Lord for his wife because Rebecca's childless and God answers his prayer in duplicate, twins. She's feeling an awful lot of kicking in there. When she asks God what's going on, he says, the wrestling match is a sign of things to come because it's not just two ordinary babies, but two nations will come from her womb. Verse 23, one is stronger than the other and very curiously, against the usual order of things, the older will serve the younger, which becomes very important in our plot. They're born in verse 25, Esau first, red and hairy, and Jacob not long after, grasping the heel of Esau, as if he's trying to hold him back and get out first. It's a habit Jacob keeps up his whole life. The names aren't very flattering. Esau means hairy, Jacob means grasper. (laughs) Uh, And that's the cast. Now for the plot, it's a tale of two meals. First up, meal number one, which we read this morning, Esau's meal and his birthright. Time passes and the twins couldn't turn out any different. Esau is an outdoor sort of guy, a man's man, loves dirt under his fingernails and hunting. Jacob prefers the indoors, verse 27, a quiet man staying among the tents. Sounds like a bit of a wimp, uh, at least physically, but he's got a steely determination. Uh, And now verse 28 describes a situation that has disaster written all over it. Isaac, who had a taste for wild game, loved Esau, but Rebekah loved Jacob. Let me warn you, don't try this at home. If you've got more than one child, the parents play favourites. Dad likes the hunter, mum likes the mummy's boy. It's a family that's split right down the middle. And one day... When Jacob, with his apron on, is cooking up a lentil stew, 
Harry Esau comes in after a hard day's hunting. In verse 29, he's starving and he says to his smooth skin, stay at home brother, quick, I'm so hungry I could eat a horse. Let me have some of that red stew. And Jacob says to him, you want stew? Well, first tell me your birthright. Before I give you any stew, sign over your rights as firstborn son, the double inheritance. Now, at this point, I want to suggest it's actually Jacob who is the skilful hunter because he set a trap and it's Esau who's acting like the dumb prey sucked into the snare for a lump of bait. He's had a hard day, he's hungry, that the stew smells so good. And verse 32, what good is a birthright if he dies of starvation? And so without a thought, he agrees. It's a deal. And he swears an oath and he trades his birthright. Jacob gives him some bread and stew and Esau eats and leaves. Doesn't give it a second thought. He lives for his stomach. And in verse 34, he despises his birthright. His view is so short-sighted, he'll trade his rights and responsibilities in this very special family for a plate of stew that's gone in a flash. Well, that's the first act, meal number one. There are no heroes, are there? Jacob is mean and crafty. Esau is stupid and faithless. Esau's appetite for a short-term fix sees him giving up his future and his heritage and grasping Jacob grabs it. We're going to jump over 26 uh, except to say that Isaac is back in the spotlight and God continues to promise his blessing to Isaac's family. Uh, And then in chapter 27 we see meal number two, Isaac's meal and his blessing. Isaac's getting old, his eyes are so weak he can hardly see and he calls for his favourite son Esau, the older stronger one and he says, son my sons, uh, my time is running out, go and hunt me some wild game, bring it back, cook it for me, I'll give you my blessing before I die, my blessing for my favourite. So off Esau goes but Rebecca's been listening and she says to Jacob who's her favourite, Listen, I've overheard your father. He sent Esau away to hunt uh, some tasty takeaway. Uh, he's going to give him the blessings before he dies. Uh, so do what I say. Here's the plan. Verse 9 and 10. Uh, get two goats from the flock. Uh, she'll cook them just the way the old man likes it so that they taste like their wild game. Uh, and Jacob will take the food in and, and he'll get the blessing instead. It'll be easy because he's blind. But Jacob's not so sure. Not about the morals, he doesn't have any problem with the trickery, he's pretty good at that, he's just worried he might get caught. And so he says to mum, verse 11, Esau's hairy and I'm smooth, what if dad touches me? He'd know I was tricking him and then he'd curse me rather than bless. Well, Rebecca's got a plan for that, perhaps that's where Jacob gets it from. Goat skins, she says, instant hair, uh, maybe the, the, the Bible's first wig, uh, on his hands and the smooth part of his neck so that he feels like Esau. And she puts Jacob into Esau's clothes so that he even smells like Esau. And verse 17, she gives Jacob the food and bread and sends him in. 
This is horrible, isn't it? It's a con job of the worst sort. A lousy way to treat your blind, aged father. Sure, there has been this long-standing prophecy that the older brother will serve the younger and sure, Esau's been happy to sell off his birthright but you don't do it this way to get the blessing of your dad. You don't treat your brother that way either. There are no heroes at all in this story. And so as you read along, it's, it's hard to find anyone whose side you want to be on. Jacob comes in, my father. Who is it? says Isaac. He might be blind, but he can smell a rat. Sounds like Jacob. And even though he's got concerns, whatever question Isaac asks, Jacob has the right answer, just like any good con man. He may not sound like Esau, but he feels like Esau, thanks to the hairy goat skins, and he smells like Esau. And the food tastes like Esau, thanks to mum's cooking. And so in verse 27, uh, as Isaac smells the earthy smell of Esau's clothes, that's a nice way of saying, they ponged, I guess, uh, he senses that everything's well and he blesses Jacob, thinking it's Esau. Verse 27, you smell like a good paddock, he says, so may God give you of heaven's dew and earth's richness an abundance of grain and new wine. May nations serve you and peoples bow down to you. Be Lord over your brothers and may the sons of your mother bow down to you. May those who curse you be cursed and those who bless you be blessed. Which is exactly what the grasping Jacob seems to want more than anything else, to be first, to rule over everybody, especially over his brother. And that's just what Isaac blesses him with. Well, what happens next is predictable, a bit like a Seinfeld episode. Isaac goes out, Esau comes in and there's a rerun of the same scene except that it's too late. Esau says, bless me too, but Isaac can't, he's already given the blessing. Jacob came and took it. They're both furious. Verse 36, Esau fumes. Isn't he rightfully named Jacob, that heel grabber who trips you up, drags you back? That's twice. He took my birthright, now my blessing. And Esau leaves dejected and unblessed. And in verse 41, he comforts himself with the thought of killing Jacob. But once again, Mum's listening and she jumps in to look after her favourite. She urges Jacob, flee at once to my brother, Laban in Haran, verse 43. Stay with him until your brother calms down and I'll send for you when it's safe. Two competing sons, parents who play favourites. There are no heroes here. Or are there? At the start of chapter 28, Jacob leaves with his father's blessing. This time, Isaac knows what he's doing, uh, knows that it's Jacob. And it's a blessing that reflects the blessing that God has given to Isaac back in chapter 26 that we jumped over. And the blessing God gave to his father Abraham before him. A blessing that God has been reminding these men of for more than a century. God's promised it. So it's going to happen, 100% certain. 
Verse 3, Isaac blesses Jacob. May God Almighty bless you and make you fruitful and increase your numbers until you become a community of peoples. May he give you and your descendants the blessing given to Abraham that you may take possession of the land where you now live as an alien, the land God gave to Abraham. Sounds familiar, doesn't it? And I think that it's in these verses that we get a hint about who the real hero is. The only one who does what's right and true and strong and just every time. It's God himself. God never changes. God's always reliable. He promises something and he'll bring it to pass. He promises to make blessing out of the mess. That's the only thing you can trust. In a grasping, cheating, lying world, God promises blessing and all as a gift. And the Bible is the story of how God does that, how he does make Jacob into a nation and gives them the land. But it's also a story of how humanity continues to be like Jacob, to to lie and to cheat and to scheme. And yet through it all, despite us, God works out his blessing to his people. It's blessing, of course, that that culminates, that that reaches its peak in Jesus from the long line of Abraham's descendants, the one who fulfils all of the promises, God's final blessing to the world, the one who deals with the mess, with the sin and whose death pays out the price for our punishment and whose resurrection guarantees our life. That's the hero we should cheer for, the life we should follow. But that's a long way off from Jacob and Esau, isn't it? Our two terrible twins and their parents, Isaac and Rebekah, the foolish parents. There's not a hero we can learn from, uh, not a hero among them. So what can we learn from them? Well, I want to suggest, just like last week, that it's all about the promises of God. Uh, Think about Esau, uh, born into a family of incredible privilege and potential. God had promised them descendants as numerous as the stars and a whole country. But Esau despised his birthright. He wasted it. He sold it for a meal. If you're a Christian, then just the same as Esau, you've been promised an inheritance. When God made you his child and forgave your sin, uh, promises his Holy Spirit to live in you and to be with you, he promises you an inheritance, an eternal home, a life now with a new richness and satisfaction. They're all wonderful promises, but sometimes they can seem a little dull or a little or a long way off. And that future we can be tempted to undervalue, to despise, to swap for something tastier. We can be tempted by instant gratification, something that satisfies us now, but is far less valuable. Hebrews 11 is full of New Testament lessons from the life of Abraham's family. Uh, People who kept trusting God's promises even though they couldn't see them. That's what faith is. 
confidently living today even though you can't see God's promises in the future but knowing that they will happen. Well, When we get to chapter 12 we get through the long list of examples and uh, in chapter 12 the writer of the Hebrews uh, writer of Hebrews makes the point and he says therefore you should copy them throw off the sin that holds you back and run with perseverance and fix your eyes on Jesus even though it's tough that's what faith is it keeps moving forward even though it can't see what's over the hill and if you jump forward a few verses in Hebrews 12 down to verse 15 Esau gets a mention not it's not a nice mention but he gets a mention so down in Hebrews chapter 12 verse 15 it says see to it that no one misses the grace of God and that no bitter root grows up to cause trouble and defile many see that no one is sexually immoral or is godless like Esau who for a single meal sold his inheritance rights as the oldest son. Afterward, as you know, when he wanted to inherit this blessing, he was rejected. He could bring about no change of mind, though he sought the blessing with tears. The warning is that you can miss God's grace. You can know all the promises. You can even be living as a Christian and looking forward to heaven, but then something jumps in and distracts you and attracts you and leads you away from following Jesus. Something that tempts you to take a short-term view rather than a long-term view. For Esau it was a bowl of soup. For you I'm pretty sure it will be something different. Hebrews specifically mentions sexual immorality. It's a great example of choosing immediate satisfaction rather than long-term faithfulness. Risking your salvation, sacrificing your family for some flattering attention, for a few minutes of feeling good. Or maybe it might be another sort of shortcut. It might be an illegal shortcut to, to financial gain, a hand in the till, signing for work that you didn't do, claiming benefits you're not entitled to. Or maybe it's the short-term desire to get even and take revenge on someone rather than leaving it long-term, leaving it up to God. For others, maybe it's, it's not actually a conscious decision at all, but they just start down the path of Sunday sport, Sunday morning sleeping, buying a boat, buying a holiday house or maybe busyness or tiredness means the Bible gathers dust on the shelf, family devotions get overlooked and before they know it, church and then God become forgotten, they fade away. All of those are short-term attractions rather than long-term faithfulness. Don't be like Esau. Valuing your birthright means making an effort now, choosing the long term, prioritising it, sticking at it. Value what God has promised in the future and show that in your choices today. 
And if you're young, uh, let me challenge you in the same way, but flip it over. Parents, uh, your parents have given you a wonderful heritage, growing up in a family where Jesus is honoured, where Jesus is modelled. What are you doing with that heritage, with that birthright? Are you despising it? Are you just coasting along on the faith of your parents rather than your own faith? Have you claimed it for yourself? Have you stood up for Jesus on your own and recognised his right to rule your life rather than just the life of your family? Don't follow Esau's example. Well, maybe you're not a Christian. If that's you, then can I say as strongly as I can that the Christian life is a birthright with wonderful promises that's worth pursuing and taking hold of. God's promises are real. We may not see them all right now, but they're worth it. He does bless. Uh, You can trust his promises. Jacob at least got that much right. And the best gift of all is that those promises are a gift. They're free. You you can't chase them or buy them or earn them or negotiate them or or trick them, trick for them. That was Jacob's mistake. He, He tried to get them on his own when all you have to do is trust and accept. Ephesians 4 describes the wonderful promises that God offers us the wonderful birthright we have, Ephesians 2 verse 4, and I'll finish with those words. Here's what God promises us. Because of his great love for us, God, who is rich in mercy, made us alive with Christ even when we were dead in transgressions. It's by grace you've been saved. And God raised us up with Christ and seated us with him in the heavenly realms in Christ Jesus in order that in the coming ages he might show the incomparable riches of his grace expressed in his kindness in Jesus. For it's by grace you've been saved through faith, and this not from, it, from yourselves, it is the gift of God, not by works so that no one can boast. Value that. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, what wonderful promises you give us. Uh, Some of it we get now. We thank you for joy and forgiveness and relationship and the power of your spirit uh, to overcome sin and to live like Jesus. But much of it is still to come. We pray that just like uh, the Lord Jesus, you would help us to fix our eyes on him and to pursue what we can't see yet, uh, to trust you, and not to settle for short-term solutions. Uh, Help us not to be like Esau. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.